and welcome to Spotlight on France. I'm Sarah Elsis. And I'm Alison Hurd. This week we have a report on teaching about the Holocaust, which will give you a surprising amount of information and insight into French teaching methods. We also talked to one of France's leading pundits about being criticized not for her ideas, but for who she is, female and black. But first over to the French president. Difficult to talk about a week in France without mentioning Emmanuel Macron. On Thursday evening, he gave a much-awaited announcement, a speech, and then an interaction with journalists on what will now change following three months of the great national debate. And this, of course, was organized in response to the Yellow Vest protests, which are now in their fifth month. Two and a half hours, by the way, he was speaking in total. This is the first time that he's addressed the press directly since he was elected two years ago. He made it clear that he had heard the protests He mentioned the yellow vest by name. And and he recognized their grievances. Life was too expensive. There's the frustration with the elites, feeling of being abandoned, especially in rural areas. Macron said the protests revealed blind spots in French society. But that didn't mean that he was launching into some big overhaul. Face à toutes ces inquiétudes, est-ce qu'il faudrait tout arrêter de ce qui a été fait depuis deux ans? Should we stop what we've done in the last two years? Have we taken a wrong turn? I think the opposite. This is Macron speaking. The transformations underway are crucial for our country. And he said, I believe that the path that we've taken for the first two years was justified. So really, they're saying no turning back. That's right. No change of direction. He'll continue basically with the reform program. This was about freeing up and streamlining the economy, reducing public spending. So just a change in tone and a few tweaks. Now, the main issues that were brought up in the debate were to do with uh, democratic representation and lowering of taxes. So on the issue of democracy, the Yellow Vest protesters had demanded what they called a RIC, that's the Citizens' Initiative Referendum. Macron said no to that. He also said no to recognizing the vote blanc or blank votes in an election. But he did agree to reinforce existing constitutional measures that allow for citizens to back proposals for new laws. He said he'd lower the bar for getting those laws on the books from 4.5 million signatures to 1 million. He also said yes to more proportional representation in Parliament and give local governments more power. In terms of taxes, back in December, remember Macron already announced 10 billion euros of tax cuts and a minimum wage increases. What did he propose this week, Alison? Another uh, 10 to 15 billion euros. He talked about income tax breaks and also indexing pensions to inflation. So, uh, you know, something for the old people. He promised more public services, particularly in rural areas. He talked about um, there would be no more schools or hospitals closed before the end of his term of office, though uh, it has to be said not much was said about how that would be funded. Now, all of this was supposed to speak to the yellow vest, but of course, it's difficult to appease this kind of protest movement, especially if you don't give in to a key point there, which is the citizens referendum. This woman in Paris, um, a yellow vest protester, uh, her name is Danielle, said he was very seductive. Macron mentioned the yellow vest by name. He did some self-criticism. He smiled. But she said this was theater. Nothing concrete came out of this uh, proposal. 
And the movement's founder uh, was speaking on public radio and she made the point that if you're working, if you're not retired, if you're earning the minimum wage, so in other words, you're not eligible to pay tax, so this is the case for many yellow vests, then there isn't much in this package for you. So arguably, this is your typical yellow vest protester. But was he maybe really talking to them in the first place, Sarah? You kind of wonder, it's possibly not aimed toward the yellow vest, maybe more towards the middle class. Um, and, and some have even pointed out that this presentation had kind of the sound of a campaign speech for the European Parliament elections in a month. The far right there is the main challenge to Macron's uh, La Reine party. And in some ways, he seemed to be appealing to the right. For example, he proposed a yearly debate in Parliament about migration. There was talk about family values, and he restated his commitment commitment to laicity or secularism, all issues that didn't really come up in the great debate. And then there was this strange phrase that he mentioned, l'art d'être français, the art of being French, something that might just appeal to patriots in France. He defined it as being both rooted and universal, attached to history, but embracing the future. And as he said, it's about being able to debate everything all the time. One of the more mystifying promises from the president last night was his wish to put an end to les grands corps, or the big bodies in English. Michael Fitzpatrick, you keep an eye on the French press for us, for those of us who don't necessarily understand French or follow the French media. What was Michael talking about in these big bodies? Well, they are, in fact, a single group of about 1,000 top civil servants. They work on economic policy at the finance ministry in the National Public Spending Watchdog to make sure the government doesn't overdo it. They're also on the state council advising the government on the legality of proposed laws. And they work as well supervising major investment in infrastructure. They describe themselves as state inspectors, and that roughly is what they do. They come from two schools, Polytechnique, which trains engineers, and the National School of Administration, that's ENA, for the financial state spending and judicial experts. Basically, the top students at the end of each year are assigned to the top jobs in the French civil service. It's not something that goes back to Vercingetorix or Napoleon. It, in fact, dates from 1945, when Charles de Gaulle established the school with the idea of training the people who would run the affairs of the state rather than have crucial post filled by somebody's idiot cousin. So um, education replacing nepotism. So in uh, this top administration school, yeah, bringing out the meritocracy and not nepotism, what's the problem in it? Why get rid of it? The intake is socially very selective. 70% of students in recent years have come from comfortable middle-class backgrounds. Uh, they're not surprisingly predominantly Parisian. 56% uh, describe their origins as provincial, but of course that doesn't mean they're poor. They tend to be white, bright and on the make. They're not necessarily from the same universe as the people they work with or for on a daily basis. And that's partly why the yellow vests don't like them. Uh, they represent a sort of uh, culmination of that uh, bureaucratic, elitist France which makes decisions for the rest of us without really knowing how the rest of us live. Of course, Macron is a product of this school, the INA. How much, though, is it really a symbol of the elite and how much of it is actually, uh, I mean, it seems as 
though it's there for a reason, it does train people to do these jobs. It does, and it produces presidents and prime ministers, uh, four presidents and seven prime ministers since its founding in 1945. And that's to say nothing of the hordes of senior civil servants that have been produced as well. You do have to be very good to get in. They're very well trained. French civil servants are internationally regarded as a seriously formidable bunch of people. So it's an effective tool to train these civil servants, but it is a symbol of the elite. Getting rid of it makes a certain amount of symbolic sense, but then what do you do? How do you train the replacements? Well, that's exactly the question the Catholic uh, newspaper La Croix was asking in its review of this presidential proposal. The country is still going to need top managers. It's going to need trained administrators and articulate politicians. These people are going to come from the same social strata as they do anyway now, even if you abolish the school. Defenders of ENA say that they in fact represent a very crucial counter power because uh, they can't be sacked. So they're able to criticise what the government is trying to do from the inside without fear and perhaps they thus form a quite invisible from a public point of view but very important sort of counterbalance to government power. Thanks there to Michael Fitzpatrick. And now for our regular rendezvous with history. No surprise here with that music. Today it's connected to the French national anthem. Yes, sir. It was written on April the 25th, 1792 by a young soldier based in Strasbourg. He's called Claude-Joseph Rouget de Lille. He was at a banquet that night and the discussions turned to war because Austria was threatening at the time to invade and restore the monarchy and put down the young French revolution. So the army needed a really good, rousing, patriotic song to inspire people to defend France. Legend has it that Rouget de Lille went home, picked up his violin and composed the lyrics and this wonderful melody in just an hour. So here's the famous chorus, aux armes citoyens, formez vos bataillons, take up arms, citizens, form your battalions. It goes on to say, let's water the fields with impure blood. Pretty intense words there. How did this song come to be called La Marseillaise? Well, revolutionary troops that were marching from Marseille at the time in the south of France through up to Paris, adopted it as their marching song, and once it reached the capital in July 1792, it became known as La Marseillaise, from Marseille. Today we hear all kinds of official ceremonies, even at football matches, but it's always been kind of controversial. It has, despite this great rousing melody, the words are a different matter. Within weeks of writing it, de Lille himself was thrown in prison, suspected of being a royalist. Later, uh, Louis XVIII, for example, banned it because of its revolutionary roots. It was finally restored as the anthem in 1879. Now, how you feel about the song tends to be a kind of indication of how attached you are to France. Over the years, it's been hijacked by the right. It's been viewed at times as rather racist. Some see the words in the chorus about watering the fields within pure blood as referring to a sort of cleansing out operation of people who weren't of pure French lineage, in other words, migrants, for example. But it still has the power to unify. You might remember after the Paris terror attacks in November 2015, MPs from all parties in the National Assembly stood up and gave a really rousing rendition in Parliament. And 
and millions then sung the anthem around the world to show solidarity with France. More recently, we've sometimes heard it on yellow vest marches, with the emphasis being unsurprisingly on the call to arms, aux armes citoyens. French schools are seen as a way of transmitting French values, aren't they? Indeed, it's where civic values, in particular laïcité or secularism, is meant to be transmitted to the next generations. And every rise in intolerance, especially anti-Semitism, leads to a questioning of the role of education in France. This happened earlier this year with a string of anti-Semitic events. Back in February, there was hand-wringing over where these ideas came from. Anti-Semitism isn't explicitly taught in school, though the Holocaust appears in history curriculum in primary, middle, and high schools. Some schools have turned to eyewitness testimony of survivors to help evoke the human, even emotional impact of that history. I visited one school in Paris. It's a combination middle and high school that had invited survivors, and they spoke to a teacher about how they can help teach the subject. It's a Friday evening in the school cafeteria. It's full, but no one's eating. There are about 20 tables, each with an elderly person sitting, with about 15 to 20 students around them, listening intently. This man talks about being rounded up by German soldiers in July of 1944 when he was a teenager because he was a member of the French resistance. He describes his deportation to the Dachau concentration camp, being put with a hundred other people into a train wagon. This woman was deported for being Jewish at age 15. She talks about returning two years later at the end of the war and being put in an orphanage. Hundreds of children were waiting for their parents to find them after the war, but they never came back. Concentration camp survivors, members of the resistance, hidden children, each had a story to tell. This is an annual event at this school that's been going on for 20 years. But it might not last much longer, at least in its current form. That's what Julie Van Reckham told her students when she encouraged them to attend. You are the last generations to be able to meet those people in real. Van Reckham was looking forward to the event. It's her first year at this school. Though she's been teaching middle school history for 15 years, she's never had the opportunity to have her students meet survivors and eyewitnesses. It's not a standard part of the curriculum in France. Usually we, ha we work on videos, we work on interviews, so it's always a second-hand uh, material. World War II comes up three times in a French student's education. France has a nationwide curriculum that all teachers have to follow. The topic is taught in primary school at age 10, then in middle school at age 14, these are her students, and then in high school at 16 or 17. So we call it in pedagogy, it's spiralaire, like a spiral, and we realize that, oh, the teacher I had when I was 10 years old told me this, and now we are discovering that this is not as simple as I thought. And we will come back when I will be 16 on the same topic, and we will discover it's Oh, no, it's not simple at all. 
It's not simple, and there's a lot to cover in a very short amount of time. Her guidelines for teaching World War II are included in a section called Europe, Theater of Wars, one of three sections to be covered during the school year. And in that section, there are a lot of topics, from the First World War, the Armenian Genocide, the Front Populaire in France, totalitarianism in Germany and the USSR. And then we have the Second World War, and then we have the Second World War in France. We are supposed to finish this beginning of December. So it means three months of classes with holidays in between, and usually I'm like two months late. <laughs> How she teaches is also up to her, but there are specific points she has to address. I can show you. She goes to a bookshelf and pulls out a binder. So it's um, the program we This have. is so Le Programme for Teaching History in Her Year, the concepts that the Ministry of Education has decided must be learned by every student. Van Reckham turns to the section that includes World War II, and then the one that specifically addresses the Holocaust, called the War of Annihilation. We have like one, two, three, four lines. It's mass violence and annihilation characterize the Second World War. It's a war with um, planetarian dimensions. Genocide of Jews and gypsies uh, must be studied with the persecution of other minorities. That's it. That's it, which is why she's interested in having her students meet people who live through it. At the event, the students were attentive for the first hour when the people presented their stories. Then they asked questions. This student asked a resistant if he made friends in the camp. Van Reckham says the questions she overheard were very concrete, like the three girls who listened to a photographer who published a book on the survivors of Ravensbrück, a concentration camp for women. And uh, she explained many things about how it was forbidden to have a bra because a bra can become a weapon. And I heard my pupils asking very concrete questions about that. But how do you do without a bra? How do you uh, hide things in a bra? It's very, very down-to-earth questions. Jad, one of Ran Reckham's students who spent time with a man who was a hidden child of the Holocaust. His parents left him in the care of a non-Jewish family. He was 14, Jad's age now, and joined the resistance. But that's not what impressed her. What impressed her the most was his physical endurance. He couldn't take public transportation because there were identity checks, she says. So he cycled everywhere, sometimes up to two days at a time. I could never do that, she says. The old generation was really something. Van Reckham says this is what she expected and hoped her students would get out of the experience. The concrete, the physical, the details. If I want them to talk about what is the final solution, how the Germans were able to do that kind of thing, it's a question of adults. Meeting survivors can be emotional, and often that's the goal, expose children to the emotional reality of the Holocaust. Van Reckham says yes, but... It's something, uh, as a teacher, I have to keep in mind how to make a discrepancy between emotion and history. What is a historian? It's to make a step on the side and to think about that with a more systemic uh, mind.
A lot's been said about teaching the Holocaust in France in the face of growing anti-Semitism. But Vremrekum says she's very rarely ever come across true anti-Semitism in her classes in her 15 years of teaching, which she spent mostly in a Paris suburb with a mixed population. She learned to anticipate the questions. For example, what do we talk always about Jews and not about the Arabs? And I have a lot of arguments to say, no, we don't talk only about Jews and there is a specificity of the Holocaust, so we, we have to speak about it. It's very interesting because there are um, all those negationism points that have been raised for 30, 40 years in France. And we have to come back with our kids about that. That's to say some people said that the camps didn't exist or the gas chamber didn't exist. And usually the kids I taught, they are so amazed that some people dare to question the existence of the gas chambers. It's not the kids which has a problem for that, it's the adults. Kids turn into adults, of course, but for Van Reckham, the school curriculum, if taught well, can help students understand this complicated part of history and allow them to push back on this kind of denial. Sarah, we mentioned earlier President Macron talking about the art of being French in his press conference. One French woman who hasn't always felt accepted in her Frenchness is the writer and journalist Rocaille Diallo. She's become one of France's most prominent and controversial political pundits. She's called out structural racism in France and she's defended women's wearing of the hijab. That's made her a lot of enemies. She's just written a book called Ne reste pas à ta place, Don't Stay in Your Place. It talks about how, as a girl born into a working-class Senegalese family in France, she refused to do what was expected of her. What we call like opinion journalism is mostly held by white male, and it's very uncommon to see a woman, especially a black woman, you know, standing around the table to say things about general politics or social issues. So nobody could have predicted at the time I was born that I would end up being around that table. You say in the book, at one point you decided not to play the role of the girl who would remain silent. Mm -hmm. You've ended up upsetting quite a number of people. What set off that desire? It happened very late actually because as a teenager I was very shy. I didn't dare to raise my voice and I understood the more I advanced to my study, the less there were people like me, like people of color. And at some point I was the only one and people interrogated me as if I wasn't truly French. And I realized that for many people being French meant to be white and to be Christian, which I was not. And I realized at the same time that the image of the country that was displayed by the media was very different from what I knew. So I wanted to say something about the France I knew, to say that France is not you know, a matter of color, skin, or of religion. We are very diverse. I lost my shyness when I focused on what I wanted to say, because to me it was very, very important to be among those people who spoke on my behalf. You've been criticized for the stance you've taken, for example, on the veil, the hijab mm -hmm. in France. As a feminist, I can't understand how you can decide for a woman how she should be dressed. To me, it's not about supporting the hijab, it's about supporting free choice. And there is a very patronizing way of seeing Muslim women, which consists uh, in not hearing what they say, but in believing that we know better than them 
what is good for them. And I'm Muslim and I don't wear hijab in my family. There are women who wear the hijab and women who don't wear it. And to me, it's okay to have that choice. And as a Muslim woman, I have to stand along women who make a choice because it's very oppressive, especially hearing men to say it's not okay to dress yourself like that. And in France, there is the legacy of colonialism. During the times of the colonizations, there was this idea that it was meant to make people be civilized. And I think that what stands behind that ideology of removing the hijab of every woman's head is that we need to civilize them and to make them French, but in the way we see Frenchness. What do you think has helped you, Rokia, to take the place, to be a black Muslim woman in France and to have such a public face in the media? I think um, my parents played a great role in giving me a sense of self-esteem. I really grew up thinking that my voice was valid and that helped me to just go to that space and feeling like I belonged. I didn't have to apologize or to act as if I was tiny because to me it was something that needed to be said and I was as valid as the other people who I used to be in that place. And it was very something that was linked to my education. The other thing is that I met people who trusted me and they really helped me being in those spaces and also, you, you say several times in the book that you worked extremely hard. You're a bit of a self-made woman, mm -hmm. more along the lines perhaps of the American model than the French model. Yes, because I studied something which has nothing to do with journalism. I studied the law and then I studied like a TV production. So I worked in a production companies to make an animated series. So it's very different. But as a journalist, I was totally self-made. And the thing is that, yeah, when I say I work hard is that it's because I have many people who critique me, who critique the person and not my work. I have uh, directed several documentaries, I've written several books, and I've taken part to many conferences around the world. And I never hear people explicitly criticizing what I do, like or some line of my book or some part of my films or something that they heard in a conference. It's just, she is like that. She is divisive. She hates friends. And that's something that is not rational. I just try to say, if you want to criticize what I do, I'm fine with that. But just criticize what I do, not the person I am. And I think that, you know, being a black woman and not not being like the nice black woman who is so happy to be there, makes people angry because I'm supposed to be grateful for, you know, having a place at the table. I think that uh, I earned it in the same way as anyone around the table. So why should I say louder that I'm grateful? That was Rokia Diallo talking about her book, Ne Reste Pas à Ta Place. And that brings us to the end of Spotlight on France this week. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe? Find us on your favorite podcast platform. Spotlight on France is a Radio France International production. See you next week. Mm -hmm.